get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Ant Campaign. Justin, how are you this week? I'm feeling good, man. Uh, a lot going on, uh, and so I'm, I'm ready to get into to the week and into this uh, conversation. Yeah, it's. Uh, I hope folks are uh, doing okay, staying safe this summer in D.C. Uh, and I know it's probably hotter in, in Atlanta. The temperatures are up high, so we're trying to get near you know water when we can, even if it's a sprinkler, and uh, just trying to just trying to stay cool and also not not stay pent up in the house as much as possible, even though it's it, it can be difficult with everything going on. Yeah, it is tough. I know my boys were were in the water as much as they could be this uh, uh, this weekend because it is scorching out here, man. Sorry. Yeah, man. Uh, well, I am uh, excited about what we have to discuss this week. You know, I do want to touch first on and things have developed over the last you know twelve hours, even uh, the Orlando Magic's Jonathan Isaac. Uh, was one of the uh, one of the few players to uh, not take a knee or wear a Black Lives Matter shirt uh, on Friday. Uh, Isaac is an ordained minister. He uh, said in a statement that he believes Black Lives Matter. This is directly from his statement. A lot went into my decision, and part of it is I thought that kneeling or wearing the Black Lives Matter T-shirt doesn't go hand in hand with supporting Black Lives. Uh, he also said, you know, each and every one of us do things that we shouldn't do and say things that we shouldn't say. We hate and dislike things that we shouldn't hate and dislike. And sometimes it gets to a point where we point fingers whose evil is worse. And sometimes it comes down to whose evil is most visible. So I felt like I wanted to take a stand on. We all make mistakes, but I think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there's grace for us and that Jesus came and died for our sins and that if we all come to an understanding of that, and that God wants to have a relationship with us, that we can uh, get kept uh, all of the things in our life that are messed up. And, and so this this made news, a lot of social media discussion. Last night in Isaac's game, uh, he tore his ACL. And so he, he's not going to be playing for a while. And so our, our prayers go out to, go out to Isaac. Uh, Justin, uh, th- there were a couple other, I think, pop out in San Antonio and a couple other players, I think uh, an assistant coach here or there uh, didn't kneel during the anthem and didn't, didn't wear a shirt. What do you think of this? What, what, what did you think of Isaac's invocation of, of his faith as a minister uh, to explain why, why he wasn't uh, taking part? Yeah. First of all, as you said, uh, prayers out to Jonathan Isaac uh, for that injury uh, as a, as a former athlete, I know what injuries can do to you kind of emotionally and otherwise. And so we'll be praying for him and his family. Let me go back. I think you did a good job of covering his statement. Let me go back to one portion of it. Um, I'm, I'm happy that he said, look, he said, I, I believe black lives matter. So that wasn't the issue. And so I, I want people to, to recognize it, that. And then he goes on to say, we all do bad things. True. And sometimes we point the finger to say whose evil is worse. 
sometimes it comes down to whose evil is most visible. Hmm. Um, so let me start by saying this. I, I, I applaud Isaac's commitment to the gospel. He's absolutely right. The, G, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer and everyone is made in the image of God. He's not going to get any fight with me on that one. I think that's absolutely right. But I think he misses the point in that last statement that I that I just pointed out. I think he misses the point. I think his comments lack historical context and a full understanding of systemic uh, injustice. This isn't about shaming white people. This is the, you know, we're not just trying to say that you're bad and I'm good. It's about systems and institutions that undermine the human dignity of black people and have done so for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, it's not about trying it, it, you know, it, well, I should say it is about trying to stop ongoing racial violence and health and educational disparities that are perpetuated by the system and are forcing people to suffer today as we speak more than they have to suffer. Um, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he gets right in part, but the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks not just to grace, but also to justice and to an active love uh, for the poor and for the oppressed that really Michael sacrificially seeks to better their circumstances, right? If we know that God hates oppression, then we can't just just summarily throw up our hands and say, well, you know, we're all bad. And then we walk away like there's no statements to be made or work to be done. His analysis, Isaac's analysis, just lacked depth and really an understanding of the practical implications of the gospel, how the gospel speaks into an unjust society. His perspective is problematic because it breeds inaction and complacency. It can and has been used as a tool of the oppressor. Uh, that perspective tells black people that they need to be docile and quiet in order to be biblical because the world is broken and there's nothing we can do about it. It's just not an accurate presentation of the whole gospel uh, of the of the whole counsel of God. That said, I'm, I'm not going to attack the brother, though. OK, uh, he wasn't being malicious. He wasn't being antagonistic. He was just misinformed. And if we're going to be honest, he's not the only anti-Black Lives Matter or pro-Black Lives Matter athlete or entertainer with a shallow analysis of the situation. Right. Some of these athletes are highly informed and God bless them. And we know that some aren't. I would also say that let, let's not overestimate the power of kneeling when that's now what's acceptable and fashionable for everyone. Right, right, to right, do. Right, right. Uh, when everyone is doing it. And everyone is now wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt, whether they've changed their behaviors and their policies or not. Right. Uh, we saw, you know, Senator Chuck Schumer and uh, House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi kneel with kente cloth. I think we have to admit that that form of expression, not just because of them, but because of things like that, has been a bit diluted. Right. Christians, especially. Let's not act like the statement and kneeling is liturgical or sacred. And that's one of the things that got to me. Like, let's not take this too far. Uh, I disagree with his analysis, as I just stated, but I don't think that he somehow uh, profaned the sacred, right? <laughs> uh, wearing a T-shirt and kneeling isn't bad. I don't have a problem with it, but it's not the most effective tactic. It's not the key to 
you know, ending injustice. It's it's a statement. It's performative. Um, uh, there are reasons. And then I think he didn't really get into this uh, in the in the part that 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 I saw or read. But I think one of his things was that there are reasons for Christians to be concerned about Black Lives Matter and what the organization represents. And I don't disagree with him there. Uh, I just agree. I just disagree with the conclusion that he drew from that. And I think some Christians are way too quick because they think generally Black Lives Matter as a statement is right. And that they're, you know, that they have an appreciation for the organization and, and what they brought, uh, uh, what they called the question in society. Now we feel like we have to defend everything that comes out and make it like it's not not that bad. Look, if you look at the organization's uh, agenda, it's not something that I think a biblical Christian can approve of. And it's okay for somebody to say that. And so I I guess what it comes down to for me is that I'm not all that concerned about him standing. I'm more concerned about the misrepresentation of the gospel and its practical implications. And so I hope that Christians will correct this brother without joining the mob who's now celebrating his injury. Like if you go on Twitter, there are people celebrating the fact that this man got injured because of the stance that he took. I hope that we can correct him without acting like he's violated something equivalent to God's word. And I hope that we can correct him. And I hope that when we correct him, uh, it's because his comments were out of step with the gospel, not because we're being dogmatic about social justice, theatrics or symbolism. Uh, And so that's how I leave it. I'll, I'll be praying for the brother and would love an opportunity to tell him how the gospel speaks into this injustice, whether he decides to stand or or not. Yeah. I, I, so, you know, I thought a, a, a couple of things. So, so one, I thought his statement. Uh, so he said, I believe the black lives matter a lot went into my decision. And part of it is I thought that kneeling or wearing the black lives matter t-shirt doesn't go hand in hand with supporting black lives. I mean, I think that's, that's just, uh, right on its face. And, and uh, I, I do think that there is a bit of like a sort of uh, a slapping on their own back that the NBA is doing that they've come up with this ceremony that, you know, it, it, the debate used to be, uh, can folks kneel down without getting fined, uh, without uh, facing some sort of penalty? It, it, it's a little like, it's a little Orwellian to have these right. stories about <laughs> stories about uh, people deciding not to kneel down and oh why didn't you don't you believe black lives matter <laughs> you know all all this uh, as if that's now the pinnacle of uh of of the kind of statement you could you could make so i i kind of I, i'm wondering what it's like to be in the nba and under you know feel like you know five years ago <laughs> you know you could get fined for saying some of the stuff that now the nba is is forcing you to do (laughs) almost. Um, And so that, that's an interesting, that's an interesting sort of, sort of uh, feeling for me. Like, and it goes to the broader question of like, what does it, what does it mean when these kinds of social movements and social questions are corporatized and, and literally made into, made into, into logos, made, made into things that you slap on your Jersey um, now again, I want to affirm what you said, which is that m- many of these players are very informed that what they're do- what, you know, what they have on their Jersey on the court is just an expression of what they're doing in their lives and what they're donating to and what they're, uh, but, but, but it is, I, I do sometimes feel a little like, 
yeah, feel feel like a little manipulated, a little icky when you see these companies that you know their goal is to make a profit all of a sudden doing these these ads like the, like they're uh, you know on the right side of history. Like I'm I'm glad Doritos is is in the fight for for Black Lives Matter, but <laughs> you know that's that's one heck of a one minute commercial you're putting out. So I do wonder if you know some of the stuff that Isaac's statements seem to me to like. To be like, I- I'm just not gonna fall into, you know. I, I think he just maybe felt a little weird being a part of <laughs> being a part of a ceremony uh, l- like this. I-, I don't know how it struck you watching, yeah, no, watching I, the games. I totally agree with the corporate side of that, and and that's one of the debates that has been going on. Like when things become so performative, and when it becomes about what you say and what theatric measure you take, you're giving these corporations an easy way out. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're giving them an opportunity to say, oh, I just have to say the words or I just have to do this certain act and then I'm good. And then I actually can boost my my brand. Right. So it's like yeah, actually right, helping yeah. their brand, but they're not sacrificing anything. And so that point of view, I, I completely don't disagree with. I agree with that first part of his statement. Black Lives Matter is not just hand in hand with supporting black lives. There are many other ways to express that and to truly pursue that, whether it be through policy or other types of advocacy. My more more issue was the statement about we're all bad and it's just about who's yeah, bad yeah, yeah. and more visible. It's like, ah, brother, I, I think yeah, you're, right, right, right. you're kind of giving somebody an out that they don't deserve because the conversation <laughs> is way bigger than right. who's good or bad as individuals, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's what the thing that's what I took. Um, uh, uh, that's what I took exception to. But I think you make a great point about you know how easily the movement has made how easy the movement has made it for these big corporations. And these folks who, you know, the NBA, you ask them to speak on on Korea. Well, it's different when they talk about something or the, uh, China. Right. Yeah, it's different right. when they're talking about something that's hitting their pockets. Exactly. <laughs> right? right. So if you ain't, yeah. if you're talking about something that's only keeping you from not losing money, of course, they're going to do it. They haven't sacrificed anything. But what do they say about this stuff that's hitting their pockets? Right. And, uh, that's, <laughs> like I, I mean, that's a real point. I agree with that. Yeah, like I can promise you the NBA's lobbyists are not all of a sudden doing law enforcement stuff now. They're still they're still lobbying to get tax credits when they build new stadiums exactly. and you know. So yeah, yeah, like you want to uh, let's see the NBA put their put their weight behind, you know, having their lobbyists push for criminal justice reforms and then then maybe I'll start feeling a little a little more moved by by some of the sentiments uh yeah all right well let's take a let's take a quick break and when we return we're going to talk about a couple other pieces that have been uh, in the news including uh the memorial service for john lewis last week this is the church politics podcast All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, last week was the memorial service for John Lewis uh, held at Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, where uh, Lewis uh, attended, and obviously where he spent good portions of his life uh, in in the movement. You know, it was socially distanced. Generally, uh, I was I was just glad they were able to 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 do a significant service for 
for Congressman Lewis. It was, first of all, I just encourage people, if you didn't have a chance this last weekend, the weekend coming up, it's a good thing just to watch with the family. I mean, you'll get, uh, your, your kids will get history lessons, a lot of luminaries from the movement, a lot of politicians who interacted with uh, the movement and with sort of its successors uh, spoke. And there were some interesting dynamics that will, uh, let's just say, lead to further reading. Uh, it was it was pretty interesting to see the politics within the, within the service. And then, you know, former President Obama gave a, a, a significant uh, eulogy. You could read that. The whole eulogy is posted uh, on uh, Medium. I'm not going to quote too much from it. Uh, now, but you know, just a, a couple themes I pulled out from from the eulogy. I, I think one, and this has been a theme really from the tail end of his presidency through, which is this emphasis on the difference that individuals can make if they dedicate themselves to a cause bigger than, than themselves. He, he spends quite a bit of the eulogy reflecting on what it would have been like to be. Uh, Lewis, who, you know, spoke at the March on Washington at 23, who was involved in Freedom Summer at 24, who uh, was at Selma uh, at 25, and just what that would be like and, and, and what uh, what kind of impact Lewis, uh, uh, Lewis's uh, sacrifice and, and uh, his work had. So, so that was one. I think I was also interested... You know, I think there was a lot of commentary, though I think it would have been um, it wouldn't have been right for it to be otherwise. The former president uh, did speak to the what he viewed as the, some of the injustices of the day, particularly digging in on voting rights, which is something we've talked quite a bit about. S- some people were earnestly surprised about that. Others uh, seem to make <laughs> seem to want to make a huge controversy uh, off of it. If you watch some of the cable. Some of the cable networks, there were people uh, who were who were not happy that the president would talk about politics at the at the memorial service of John Lewis. But so so that was uh, the the former president tried to tried to argue that to to live up to uh, uh, to honor Lewis's legacy, it required um, uh, it required a commitment to the things that he was committed to. Uh, in particular, uh, renewing the Voting Rights Act and, and strengthening sort of civic processes. It, it was, um, you know, it, it, scripture was throughout. He opened, I think, with, with uh, James, uh, James 1, I think, or James 3, and he quoted some of his, some of his favorite verses that, that uh, we've heard him refer to in, in other speeches. But it was, it, it was, it was a powerful moment. I, I, I was watching it and, and uh, thought it was something special. Well, wh- what did you think of, of the eulogy and, and just the I mean, you're in Atlanta. Uh, I, I'm I'm so interested in just from, you know, that Atlanta seat. You know, what is it? What what have the last you know couple of weeks been like, Justin? It's been deep, uh, as you mentioned, being in Atlanta and also being just a student of organizing, a student of activism, and all that has gone down in the city. Uh, you have to have an appreciation for for how someone like Lewis came up in the movement. Right. This is somebody from a small town who goes up to, you know, goes up to Nashville, uh, goes to school, goes to Fisk and very quickly came up in the movement because of his commitment to the movement. Uh, One of the things I I enjoy about just grassroots organizing 
is it's the grind and the commitment that helps one come up through those ranks, right? I mean, we all know uh, Lewis wasn't the tallest. He wasn't the most articulate, but he was committed and he was, you know, well versed in what he was and what he was trying to get after. And that's how you end up doing what he did in his yeah. early 20s. Right. Uh, that's how you end up being revered in the way that he was, because he was just so dedicated to what he was doing. So I think you have to have an appreciation for that and to see, uh, you know, the symbolism even of him being funeralized at Ebenezer and all the folks that were there and the folks that spoke uh, is just heavy because um, you do kind of sort of see this changing of the guard, whereas the civil rights generation is now kind of you know passing away. And this is just such a, a strong symbol of, of all that and what was going on in regard to uh, the eulogy. You know, I, I think folks are right. And I think uh, President Obama would agree that it was political. It was somewhat partisan. And I think there is a point to be made to say, if you really say you appreciate this man, you need to really think about what he was saying and what his message was. Right. Uh, I know a lot of people, including probably myself, I, I might not want uh their eulogy to be that political, but everything that I, you know, everything that I saw about him and every time that he spoke, I don't think that uh, John Lewis had a problem with that. Uh, there yeah. was, as you said, a controversy. I think uh, uh, Dr. King, one of his nieces, uh, Alveda King, uh, came and said it was disrespectful and things of that nature. I don't know if, in the context of who uh, Congressman John Lewis was that it was disrespectful. I don't know that he would have wanted it, wanted it any other way. Um, and he was at a point, you know, in hospice for a while where they knew what was coming and he may have had a chance to voice who he wanted to speak and, how, you know, and what he wanted to be touched on. So I don't, I don't right. think we should make those assumptions that it was disrespectful to him or his family. I see nothing in his life or his message uh, that would support that. And so, you know, uh, it was it was it was heavy. Uh, and it, it's just sad to see um, see anyone who's had that type of impact go the question is that I think we need to draw from it is where do we go from here? Right. What do we yeah. do to make things better and how do we build on that legacy? I think sometimes we just kind of lean on a legacy or we talk about the legacy, but we don't build on it. Right. We quote John Lewis. We quote, quote MLK. But do we build on what they're on what on what they said and what they did? Uh, and so I think that's you know, I think we're all called to do that. There was a little bit of a controversy because I guess uh, President Bill Clinton mentioned Stokely Carmack, Michael, who, who became yeah. uh, Kwame Tour, um, in not so great uh, terms. Uh, this is somebody else who has passed away. And I think a lot of people took exception to that. Uh, there, there there was a clear difference, I think, between your Martin Luther King's and your um, uh, John Lewis's and then someone like Stokely Carmichael. And I think Stokely Carmichael, anybody who reads his work would see that there was a stark difference. I think he wanted people to know because he was more you know, he leaned in more on the uh, the black power side of it and, and really took a different uh, take. So it's, it's worth a conversation. I don't know if President Clinton Clinton brought it up the best way or if he was really the messenger to to give that, you know, to give that message. <laughs> right. But it was yeah. a dynamic. It was a dynamic funeral. And I hope it does create conversations as we move forward on what that looks like and what we can all do better uh, as as as. Um, as we move forward with this movement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, uh, I agree with all that. It, it, it was, uh, yeah, definitely worth watching and would, would definitely commend it, uh, commend it to folks. Uh, and then, you know, it was interesting to see folks like, uh, some of the biographers of the civil rights movement, you know, talk about, 
uh, talk about the funeral. As you know, uh, Justin, I'm just getting wrapped up with David Garlow's Bearing the Cross, and I've enjoyed that. And uh, uh, you know, uh, Charles Marsh's work and, and Taylor Branch. So it, it's 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 a good moment. To uh, I know we're uh, uh, we're in the uh, thick of what feels like a, a new movement, a new sort of rise of activism. When you're in these moments, it's always good to look back at what previous generations have done. And so, what commend folks take some time to to look at that history. Yeah, I would just add, if I could, on the end of that. Don't be afraid to be critical of of you know the movement too, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. um, they all were. <laughs> yeah, they were. You, yeah, they went back and forth, yeah. like you know uh, Stokely Carmichael and and those folks. They went back and forth, and we can look at it and say, okay, what has changed from today's movement from that movement? What changes have been positive, right? Like the acknowledgement of women who everybody who really knows anything about the civil rights movement knows that there was no civil rights movement without women as the foundation of that movement. Right. But what changes haven't been so good, right? What changes, you know, maybe have taken away from the message or have have aimed, you know, have pointed in a way that might not be so so constructive. Mm. Let's have those conversations and let's be able to have them without, you know, coming at coming at each other's necks and, and, and being so accusatory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we have one more topic we want to touch on after the break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back with the Church Politics Podcast. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while knows that I have a, a, some writers who I who I follow fairly closely. Now, one of my favorite progressive commentators uh, is Damon Linker, uh, and he had an article come come out in the week uh, that I think is a must read, and it was called "Could America Split Up?" And the more I'm going to tell you, Michael, the the more that I listen to people on the left and the right. And the more that I see the exhausted majority in the middle fail to stand up to them, I honestly do worry about what's going to happen to this country. Could America split up? Uh, We have very little, it seems, that we find in common. Uh, We enjoy fighting with each other almost too much. And we really become more extreme just to spite each other. Uh, The right gets more extreme on issues like immigration and the left gets more extreme on issues like abortion, almost to prove a point and to show how different they are. Uh, The mass controversy is is a prime example of this. It almost seems that we would rather die or put our lives at risk than to agree with one another. And I think that's a bad sign. So Linker starts this really good article off and I hope you all read it. He starts off by talking about a video that went viral on Twitter where a white progressive protester and a white conservative who was sitting in his truck were literally holding guns in each other's faces with their, you know, with their hands on the trigger, which was a sad but really clear illustration of the tension and polarization in America. And uh, Linker says this, he says, I often catch myself pondering exactly what it is that keeps our country together. What do we hold in common? What do we share? The word republic comes from the Latin uh, res republica, literally meaning public thing. What is the single thing that is our public political self? What binds us? 
And I think he sets up the two views uh, uh, very well. He says this. He says, as far as the right is concerned, progressives don't uh, want don't just want to win. They want to grind conservatives into the dust, humiliate them, force them to jump through public hoops and confess their sins before the world. And the list of sins grows ever longer on race, on religion, on sex, on gender. The left, meanwhile, views things exactly in reverse. The story of the country is one characterized by unjust domination by a narrow class of white, male, heterosexual, cisgender oppressors, and then a slow grinding uh, fight, fight towards greater liberty and equality for every identity. Now, he admits that this, you know, that there's more to the story, that he's generalizing a bit. And then he goes on to say this, and I think this this is a strong point. The culture war is the motor driving all of this with high octane fuel supplied by legions of cheerleading rabble rousers and activists who enrich themselves, advance their careers and derive spiritual satisfaction from revving up the outrage. Hello, Twitter, which is what I added, not him. Now, and I don't think, Michael, that that. Uh, Linker was uh, condemning all activists. If you read his other work, he certainly wasn't doing that. But he did just describe the mob mentality and the people who benefit from the mob mentality and all of this chaos that we actually touch on in our new book, Compassion and Conviction. And here's what I would say to this, Michael, and then I'll pass it. Uh, We need to ask ourselves. And this is a question that Linker actually asked in the in the article. What happens when the two men described pointing guns at each other actually shoot? This is why the Christian reaction is so important. Christians do have to take a side when it comes to injustice. Uh, we have to clearly be on the side of justice with no equivocation or, and no ambiguity. I'm with that. But that's very different than saying that Christians have to unconditionally and uncritically promote and defend one particular ideological tribe. Taking the side of justice doesn't mean that I surrender all my principles and fully embrace conservatism or progressivism. You know, if you look in the Bible, Jesus certainly took a side when it came to right and wrong. But just because the Pharisees lacked compassion, he didn't side with the Sadducees who lacked biblical convictions and morals. Another example is during the fight for abolition, Frederick Douglass refused to just go along with everything other abolitionists said or suggested. As much as he wanted slavery to end, he still called them out when they were wrong. And why? He did it because that's what Christians do. We don't just uh, see two flawed options and deify the one that fits our interest and our narratives the best. We speak the truth and love to both sides, even when it seems like an argument against self-interest, even when one side is more problematic than the other. Um If we think that taking a side means choosing an ideological tribe and being ride or die, covering up their flaws and and pretending like they can do nothing wrong, then we'll be politically useful to that tribe. But we won't be prophetic. We won't be faithful. Again, as Damon Linker asked, he said, what binds us? And that should not be a hard question to answer for Christians. Internally, what binds us is the gospel. Externally, when we're talking about others, what binds us to them is the Imago Dei and common grace. And that doesn't answer everything immediately for us, but I think it's a great place to start. Michael, what was your take on this this article? And uh, I know you're familiar with Damon Linker, too, and I wanted to kind of hear how you felt about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think his question at the end, do we hate each other, is is a good one to ask. And and, and how, how, how do you – there's been a lot of debate recently about process and about procedures. And, and uh, there's been a growing sort of chorus that has said that sort of a procedural democracy – isn't 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 worthwhile well one of the reasons some of us are talking about procedures and processes is because procedures operate as the backdrop if you're operating in the context of hate if you're operating in the context of love then the procedures and processes aren't all that important if you're operating in a context of antagonism if you're operating in a context of a, a, a power struggle then uh, the rules of the road and at least a willingness to hold to those uh, is really important. I, I think two people holding a, a, a guns on each other in the middle of the street is like a very good example. Like the most, it, that is a, a literal depiction of what is happening in our politics right now, which I, which I think is Damon's point, which is uh, you, you have uh, an escalation of the kinds of tools that pe- people are willing to use against each other. And Justin, your comments about the exhausted middle are I- exactly right. And I want to be clear with folks, there was no contradiction in what, uh, what, what Justin said. There is an exhausted majority in this country, and yet our politics is defined by the extremes, not because they are the majority, but because that exhausted middle... Um, it can't find it within themselves to, uh, to to have their voice heard. Can't find it within themselves to declare our politics anything other than what the extremes uh, say it is. And uh, until that situation changes, until we recognize that uh, the people who are sort of uh, driving our politics right now are are benefiting from. The, the kinds of ways and modes of operating that they encourage, uh, we're 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 just going to be in in this rut. Um, so I, I appreciated Damon's article. I appreciated the way that he um, gave kind of the most robust. Uh, again, as you said, Justin, he, he acknowledges it was simplistic, but but then again, these simplistic narratives about the other side are are, are really w- what is fueling our politics right now. So I, I appreciated that he. He, uh, for a paragraph each, he kind of, uh, without caveat, without sort of, he kind of helped you get inside the minds of, of folks who did hate the other side, who did view the other side in such an antagonistic uh, manner. And, and I thought that was, that was helpful to get some, some clarity on, on where we are. For Christians, we need to decide whether we want a politics uh, that is driven by and that is grounded in uh, hatred of those outside the tribe, uh, and uh, th- that is um, that is something that Christians in particular need to get very clear about, and need to get very convicted about uh, if if this uh, this mode of operating is going to change. Yeah, and again, I thought it was also helpful how he pointed out who how there are people on both sides who get something, whether it be you know financially, professionally. Uh, or, or some kind of spiritual, you know, uh, 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 benefit from revving this up, from making yeah. this as polarized as possible, because they know that the more upset you are, 
the more angry you are, the more clicks they're going to get, right? The more you're going to listen to them and the more you feed off of what they're giving you. So whether it's, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's on the right or the equivalent on the left, it should this should cause Christians to take a step back and say, who do I follow on Twitter or on other social media that every time I read what they say, I get upset, right? Yeah. Uh, who is it that really feeds off uh, the angst and the anger of the people? Uh, and, and maybe you need to, to mute that person for a while. Right. And that's yeah. not to say there's not things to be upset with. But we know the thing. We, we know that there are things that be upset with. How it, how is that being used, quite frankly, to manipulate you? Right. right. And, and it's it's funny because we can always see that happening on the other side. Like, look how they listen to, you know, Hannity <laughs> or they listen to this person or that person. We rarely can see it on our side. Right. We, we rarely will admit that the person that we like or the person that supports our narrative could be doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just hard to, to realize. So I think if anything, to me, this and this wasn't an article written for Christians or anything like else, but to, but to place it into our uh, our worldview and into our lens, it said to me, this is exactly why Christians need to step back and why Christians need to make sure that they're not adding to what's going on. That we don't see those two point folks holding a gun at each other's uh, head and say, man, I hope that person pulls the trigger first. Right. Right. Right, There's right, something right. in us that should say this whole thing is wrong. And I can see what both of you are doing wrong, even if I yeah, don't think that yeah, you're yeah. equivalent. Right. And right. I, I got to say something about it because we cannot go down this road because if we go down a road of violence. A lot of the people who think that's what they want, it's not what you want. Right. Yeah. And when you get rid of civility and we said this over and over again, what people don't understand when you get rid of, rid of civility, what do you think the alternative is? Right. And don't you understand that civility is really what gives the small guy a voice to say something? Civility is what lets the uh, a woman say something in a place where she normally wouldn't be able to if it was just about the might might is right, right? Right. That's what yep. it does. And so once you get rid of that, I hope you understand that the alternative isn't isn't far from a violent alternative. And right. most of us are not ready for that, nor should we re- be really, you know, d- uh, overly anticipating that. We should be trying to make uh, a more civil society work and push for justice and, 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 you know, the moral order that we know is, is important, but just understand how, who you retweet and who you support can push us further in a direction that we really, really should not be going. Well, I think that's uh that's a wrap for this episode. Hopefully uh, we gave you some things to think about, some resources to check out. Uh, Justin, anything you want to uh, send people off for the rest of their week uh, thinking about or uh, uh, anything you have on your mind? Yeah. First thing I would just say is please get the book. Compassion and Conviction came out a couple of weeks ago. We were a, a number one bestseller on Amazon. We are getting great reviews, but please buy the book. Please leave a, a review to tell people how, how it's impacted you. We would greatly appreciate that. Again, this is a movement and this movement is nothing without you. So anything that you can give, whether it's buying the book, whether it's giving us $10 monthly, whether it's telling, you know, something that everybody could do is telling five friends about the end campaign. Those are things that really help and it makes you a part of a movement that needs you to move forward. So I I would just ask that everybody think about what can I do to help? And it doesn't have to be about money. Uh, It can be about just getting the word out, sharing our our posts and sharing the podcast, introducing people uh, to our content. 
Uh, so that's what I would say. And then I'll just leave with this as usual. Look, Ann Kemp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of a faithful witness who uh, loves social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and Camp. Until next time, have a blessed week. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a face.